0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Now, recently I had a conversation with one of my buddies, he's kind of a a truck nut, a car nut, and he told me that Interstate Batteries makes, from a technical standpoint, some of the best car batteries on the market, period, hands down. Not only that, but they have thousands of retail locations all over the United States, so stop in to a local retail store ask the guy who works there about their car batteries and hell you might as well put one in if they're the best in the business so interstatebatteries.com is their website go there find out more information about the culture of the company the batteries that these guys carry or just stop into a, a local retail store interstate batteries outrageously dependable What's up everybody, welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, I'm your host Dan Johnson and today we're going to be talking with Mr. Whitetail365 himself, Tom Peplinski, about food plots, uh, his strong suits, where he's failed, Um, he talks about where he puts them, it's just an overall good conversation about food plots and I feel like right now, uh, just by me scrolling through Instagram and Facebook, we are seeing a lot of people taking care of food plots right now, whether it's planning, whether it is spraying them down, whether it's working on them some way shape or form, food plots are the hot topic right now and that is why Mr. Tom Peplinski is on the episode today to chit-chat about, you guessed it, food plots. So, awesome episode, tons of great information um, the, good, the, the reason I bring Tom on is because he's been doing this for a very long time, uh, managing his property, tweaking it here, tweaking it there to try to get the best outcome of his property. And uh, food plots are a big part of that. So that's what we're talking about today. but before we get into this episode, I do have to remind everybody to go to Facebook and follow the uh, follow the Iowa Sportsman, on Facebook, make sure you go to their website iowasportsman.com. Check out their their uh, vlog; they have a ton of great content coming on the website. And while you're there, you can subscribe to your magazine, uh, the Iowa Sportsman Magazine, and uh, tons of great content in there as well. And last but not least, to make it the end the perfect trifecta, or now I guess it's a little bit more, it is the Iowa Sportsman Atlas, the Iowa Atlas, and that is a breakdown of county by county, all the places you can hunt, what kind of animals you're going to find there. It's kind of a map that shows roads. It's just an atlas of Iowa and uh, places you can hunt. Uh, all the all the state parks all the public ground and it's a really good good resource I have one in my truck so that way when I'm driving around I you know and for some reason maybe my phone isn't getting serviced down in some of these river bottoms I can pull out my map my atlas and take a look at it and I think that's it oh don't forget don't forget to subscribe to the Iowa Sportsman podcast on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast that's important too Other than that, I'm done talking. Let's get into today's food plot episode with Tom Peplinski. In three, two, one. All right, back again on the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, my good whitetail brother, Tom Peplinski. What's up, man? Hey, how's it going, Dan? So before we started recording, you told me that you just got back from a fishing trip In northern wisconsin what were you doing where were you at
1: i was in uh saint germain it's it's kind of the far northeast part of wisconsin and it's kind of an annual thing we've been doing since i was about eight years old and my dad goes up and my nephews come up and my son and his girlfriend and my daughter and her boyfriend and my wife and we just kind of take turns and fish and have a good time and sit around the bonfire till midnight every night and it's just kind of a week long week long annual tradition we've been doing for a long time and we still have fun doing it.
0: Yeah, my uh my parents or my my mom and my stepdad have a little bit of a tradition of their own. They go up into Minnesota. Uh shoot, I forget the name of the lake, but they're actually leaving there this Friday and they stay a whole week and then that's that's their own trip. But then once a grandchild hits nine years old, then that gets them the pass to go up on the next trip that they take in July, and then it's all the grandkids who are older than nine years old, they all go with my grandparents, or with, with their grandparents, okay. and uh, they go fishing and boating, and just like you said, it's, it's more just to go up and have fun than it is a, a serious fishing uh, trip.
1: Yeah, we, we fish hard the weather's good and stuff this year it was really windy really really windy it was part of that tropical storm that was that's right that's right last week and every day was just in fact there was one day it was so windy I wouldn't put my boat on the water white caps so yeah it was like two or three foot white caps and I have a small boat to begin with it's kind of a kind of a flat bass fishing boat kind of thing and I couldn't even I couldn't even put my boat out so that was just a day where we just did some other stuff but it's we we fish as much as we can, and then we try to have fun the rest of the time.
0: That's right. How was the fishing this year?
1: For us, I would say it's probably in the top worst years. You know, I don't I don't know if it was the worst year, but definitely in the running. And it's just all all weather related. Cold. There was a couple days it was only in the fifties, and the wind didn't help any. And for us, that's just not. That just doesn't add up for good fishing. So
0: yeah, I feel you. So when you go up there, what are you typically going after? Walleyes?
1: No, we actually fish a lot of bass, a okay. lot of catch and release bass, and then we'll keep a couple and eat them. And and it's kind of a every once in a while we'll have a little friendly little tournament. You know, we'll pick a day and have a tournament type of thing. And um, we'll occasionally catch some crappies and bluegills, but not. I'm not a big walleye walleye guy or musky guy we actually caught three muskies on this trip believe it or not and I was on one of the days when it was windy and kind of raining and my son caught a musky I caught a musky and my nephew caught one so that's that's kind of a first
0: man so, that's definitely a fish a fish on my bucket list I definitely someday the the old fish of 10,000 casts they call it
1: yep yep and we weren't we were actually fishing plastic worms and we caught them on those yeah. like like reeling like reeling the worm in after we were done with our original cast for a bass. And they must have been really active because they hit it.
0: Oh wow. So, man, that you know? sounds like fun. Sounds like a good time. But we're not here to talk about fishing, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're here to talk about white tails. This is our our uh where where does fishing in whitetails for you lay lay i mean is there if it was a uh an order or a, a checkbox? is one ahead of the other oh
1: for sure whitetails yeah is ahead of ahead of fishing for sure i yeah. I, mean, I wouldn't i wouldn't miss that spring or late spring up north vacation type of thing unless unless there was something holding me back but if i had if i had limited time like right now i kind of have unlimited time but there was a time when, when I couldn't take a week off because I just didn't have the vacation and stuff, and in in those days, it was a couple of days of fishing, and that was it, and then the rest of the time was for whitetails, for sure.
0: Yeah. All right, so I, w- I just want to ask you a real high-level question. What have you been doing in the whitetail world these days?
1: Well, before we went on a fishing trip, I sprayed all my grain plots, corn and soybeans, and Farmer that farms my tillable ground where I live, he kind of turned me on last year to some to Liberty, Liberty Link um, corn and beans. And it's 100% due to the fact that I was having a real hard time controlling uh, horse tail or mare's tail, I don't, depends on what you call it, in my soybean plots. Um, soybeans are obviously a broadleaf, and mare's tail is a broadleaf, and I was really having a hard time controlling it. And he had me he had me switch to Liberty, Liberty link, uh, soybeans and corn. So I did that. And I, I sprayed, I want to say the day before we headed to Wisconsin. So when we got back, the first thing I did was, uh, clean out the sprayers and, and fill them up with water and and head back out to the food plots just to see if I had to do a respraying, um, if I had to touch up anything. And that was today. So I did that today actually. And I went out and I tell you what, the farmer wasn't wrong because the, my fields were perfectly clear. I didn't see any water hemp. I didn't see any mare's tail. Um, so everything everything looked really good. There was a couple spots where it looked like I had missed, you know, where I literally didn't spray it. So I touched up those spots, and so that turned out really good. Um, right. The other thing, the other thing I'm starting to do right now, um, is get my entrance and exit routes ready so as long oh, as the sprayer yeah. was hooked up. I kinda took the advantage of hitting a couple entrance and exit routes and I had my backpack sprayer so I I spent some time spraying around a few tree stands. Um just clearing out the debris and keeping the vegetation down. So to, yeah. to some of my stands. A lot of my entrance and exit routes go through uh my C R P ground and you can't you can't do any kind of mowing or maintenance in C R P this time of year. Um, but where I didn't have that, I was able to spray and, and start putting some of those um, entrance routes. Out.
0: Right. Right. So let me ask you this. Um, cause I think a lot of people right now are going through some form of, you know, if you are the kind of guy who is a, a food plot guy right now is that time of year to do exactly what you're doing. So I have a question for you in, in, from your experience, how have you handled a food plot that maybe just didn't take, or got, you know, over, you know, the, the weeds kind of took over, or it was under seeded, or there was drought, or too much water? I know that's a broad question, but how have you kind of handled food plot difficulties in the past?
1: So I can start with the weed, with the weed issue. If you have a if you have a good stand of soybeans and corn. But let's say you sprayed uh, early June or third week of May, which kind of seems like that's about the right timing, um, give and take, um, uh, depending on the year. But let's say you go back three, four weeks later and you missed a bunch, or you have problems with mare's tail or pigweed, some of these harder broadleaf weeds to control, but you still have a good stand. I would suggest in that situation to just, you know, Pick out a good herbicide that's directed at that weed that you're having trouble with and don't give up on the crop yeah uh, many times I've actually had that happen, and i'm I'm able to go back and, and do a later spraying and then save the save the crop um, The other issue would be the other issue would be you don't have a good stand, so whether that's drought which is which happens you know quite often actually you'll burn out a food plot or in the case of last year there was actually some of my plots in some of the areas didn't do the best because we had so much rain so a lot of those areas kind of drowned it out so what i'll usually do is if if the plot if you're looking at early july or even this time of year and you didn't get a good stand the weeds took over um, again you can spray if the weeds aren't too bad but if you if you think the crop has failed then you really need to go back and either do some tillage or some herbicide application to make sure that the weeds, because weeds are always going to take, there's always weed seed in the seed bank. It just doesn't seem like that ever goes away. So if your food plot has been a failure, my suggestion is to either do tillage, if that's what you have available to you, or some kind of burned down herbicide spraying because you don't want pigweed and grasses to seed out i think i read somewhere that uh, a pigweed can contain like a half a million seeds if it reaches maturity so the last thing you want to do is give up on a plot and the one thing i'll just expand a little bit is even if you're not a spring guy even if you don't put in grain corn and soybeans um different grain plots if you're just a fall like annual type guy where you're putting in winter rye or brassica, stuff like that, you still need, in my opinion, to be mowing or spraying or some kind of tillage so that you're not showing up in middle of August and you're trying to incorporate four-foot-tall canary grass and pigweed that's five feet tall, and it's just you're going to have a hell of a time. Right. Plus, a lot of that stuff might have already seeded out, so now you're just adding to the seed bank. Every year you you allow that to happen,
0: right? So do you burn?
1: Um, I'll do I'll do some spring burning in my CRP and stuff, and I I actually see see some uh, some benefit. So so let's say let's say you didn't do any tillage or didn't do any mowing, and uh, vegetation kind of got away on you. Yeah, and then you went and did a summer burn down. I think in, in that example, that would be a good, a good example where you could spray glyphosate, for example, and do a real good burn down of a small food plot, and then two weeks later come back when it's all dead and then burn that vegetation off. Okay. So I'll do that, but my preference is, is, to, is to stay on top of it so I don't have to do that. But there's definitely – I actually have a new farm I'm hunting this year. I'm putting a small little transition plot in. It's the only food plot I'm putting on that farm. I'm really not doing anything else other other than that, besides hanging some tree stands. And that's an example of the little transition plot I'm gonna put it put in was all canary grass, and actually some uh, like woody browse type broadleaf stuff in there. So I did about two weeks ago. I did a burn down. I haven't been back, but about 99% sure that'll be all dead. And then I'll probably burn that. Okay. J- just to get rid of the vegetation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So have you, have you ever had, um, a scenario where, cause I'm just going to, going to go back to my, my personal experience. And one of the reasons I feel that one of my food plots didn't take, and I tried to plant some brassicas there and, I don't, I, I think I overseeded. Is there a way to fix overseeding?
1: Well, I'll say that you're not the first guy to ever do that. I, yeah. A lot of people do that. And a lot of people think, well, I'll just add a little bit more. You know, if, it, if they're calling for three pounds per acre, let's say, of a turnip blend, well, if I give it six, it'll be a little thicker. You know, that, that's kind of the mentality that a lot of hunters have. So the only way to prevent that that I know of is let's just say you're doing that. Let's just say you're doing some kind of seed blend that's three pounds and it's going to be an acre. What I would suggest is making two or three or four passes, as opposed to trying to get it right on one pass. Yeah. So that's that's typically what I do. I have a I think it's a I think it's an Earthway. That's a shoulder strap kind of spreader. It's red. I think it's an Earthway and I don't know exactly what it holds, I would say maybe six, seven, eight pounds of like a brassica seed. And if, and if I know, let's say I'm, I'm doing a half acre food plot and it's, let's say three pounds, just for numbers, I'll put the three pounds in the spreader. But I'll put it on like the lowest setting and I'll just start, I'll just start going. And if I've covered the entire plot and I still have half the seed left, that's perfect. I'll leave I'll it at that lowest setting and I'll just do it. I'll just give it one more pass. Um, cause you can actually, you know, you mentioned that was a Brassica food plot. So that's the only way that I know of is to just start out low, like even aggressively low, and then just make two or three, four passes. If that's what it takes to use the seed that you're supposed to use on that food plot, but you can do the same thing with corn and beans. So you don't need a fancy planter. You don't need all kinds of fancy tillage. When I plant corn and beans on one of my farms, cause it's, it's a quite a, a distance for me, and I don't want to be hauling different tillage equipment and everything. So I just I take my tractor and my disc, and that's it. And that red broadcast seeder, like I was telling you about. And you can do the same thing with corn and beans. You can spread it on the ground based on the amount of seeds per acre that you should have. But again, I'll go over it twice or three times before I try and get it right with one pass.
0: I gotcha. So the, so at that point you're just trying to look to see if you've overseeded certain areas and that way you can adjust if needed or you know that hey i know i'm broadcasting less on this first pass and you're able to just observe your your broadcast at that point
1: yeah yeah so it's it's the latter i, okay. I know i know i want a certain amount of seed to go on this acre and if I go on my lowest setting or one of my very lowest settings, I'm going to have, I'm going to get done with the whole plot and I'm going to have seed left over. That's actually the goal. Yeah. And then I can always go over it again or yeah. even a third time to, to make sure that my three pounds, let's say, for that acre is spread out. What you don't want to do, and if you're in a hurry and stuff, I, I understand people are, tr- are trying to get a lot of work done, but they'll try and, wow, this, this looks like about right. So they start going and they find out that they only get a third of the plot done and their seed's gone. Well, you just put an acre's worth of seed on a third of an acre. So now, not only do you have two thirds of an acre that's not planted it, and you'll probably have a failed crop just cause it's, it's just too thick. It's gonna come up, it's gonna be yellow. It's gonna compete against itself and it's not gonna be the the best plot in the world. So. Yeah. I suggest for these small because most food potters just don't have ten or fifteen thousand dollar, you know, top notch right uh drills, no till drills or conventional drills where they can set it and they know exactly most guys aren't doing that. Most guys are using these hand seeders and that's what I use. Um, just go short. Go short and plan for two or three passes as well.
0: I gotcha. So let me ask you, let me ask you this then. Um When, what do you, what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes that people make when they're planning food plots?
1: I think the biggest mistake people make is their location is wrong. I think so not. So just if there's, there's two different issues. One is the quality, the actual quality of the forage in the plot. So that, that's one, that's one issue. The second issue. And really, I think that's the more important issue is the location of it. Yeah. So I, I think that's the biggest mistake that people make. I see it all the time. Um, I wrote an article for Iowa Sportsman, and the whole article was all about the location of food plots and how it seemed like 15, 20 years ago, the big fad was these kill plots. And I, was, I, I did it too. So it's not, like, it's not like I'm saying I know everything, but you learn from your mistakes kind of thing. And that was the big, the big marketing Thing is everybody was coming out all the food plot manufacturers were coming out with these kill plot seeds and and so the what you saw on tv and everything was these little quarter acre and half acre food plots all over in the timber and and there was you know the label was these kill plots well they're almost impossible to get to for your entrance route and your exit route it's nearly impossible to hunt them on while you're on stand without having deer get downwind you Um, so I just, I don't plant them anymore. I haven't probably for 15 years. And then, uh, the bigger destination plots, you got to make sure that you're not walking by those on the way out on an evening hunt. So that's pretty tempting to pick the easiest, most convenient, you know, two acres you have available to put soybeans or corn in. But if it's located where you need to park your truck or where you need to walk out in the, after the evening hunt that you're going to burn that plot out and you're not even hunting it. Right. So that's, that's like two examples are the, these little kill plots that are located deep in the timber. I wouldn't recommend doing those at all. And then if you do want to plant these grain plots, soybeans and corn, you got to make sure that there's some place where you'll never walk by them. Your scent's never going to go through them. Your truck's not going to be by them. You know, just those are left alone. So you're not, the deer are left there undisturbed yeah they can count on that evening evening food source every night yeah so So that's kind of like half the equation is location and i think that's people get that wrong i think more than anything else because they're so fixated on um how lush is my food plot and how tall it is and what fertilizer should i put in and what seed should i plant and should i be liming and what's the ph and they're so worried about how it looks you know like picture picture quality food plots yeah that they're forgetting about the location half of it, and that's probably more important.
0: To the point where it potentially could become unhuntable and it turns into a nocturnal food plot? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. You can actually plant food in the wrong places and make your hunting grounds worse. Yeah. I see it all the time, Dan. I really do. And, I, and when I say that, I hope I don't sound like I'm being arrogant because I'm coming from a, a place where I, it used to be me. Yeah. I used to put these plots in the wrong places. And after doing it for several years, I'm like, what am I doing? You've made those mistakes. Yeah. yeah. You know, my hunting on this farm used to actually be better when I didn't spend all this time and money putting these food plots in. So what am I doing? And you just take a step back and you're like, oh yeah. Every time I go into this stand in the morning, I'm bumping deer out, but I don't think nothing of it. Well, by November 1st, there's not a deer in there anymore. They, they know, they know you're, they're being hunted. Yeah. And you're and you're walking out past these soybean fields with the deer on, well, again, you know, by November first, the deer ain't on them anymore.
0: Right, right.
1: You know, maybe eight o'clock, eight eight nine o'clock at night on your camera, you'll get some pictures. But so yeah, and then the other thing, really small, I, I call them like interior plots, is if you put too much good food, too much green. Like really good food source, really close to their bedding area, like in the timber. You're actually promoting a nocturnal deer herd, because there's no reason for those deer to travel any anywhere. Yeah, because it's so close to their bedding area that these deer don't have to. They don't have to walk, you know, three four hundred yards to get to their food source in the evening because they have it right in their bedding
0: area. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So, um, so location is. Would you where would you put that? On in the grand scheme of things like is location one of the most important things when planning a food plot? It's, it's in my opinion. It's the most important.
1: It, it absolutely is. The most important thing is to figure out location first. That's that's number one. Gotcha. And then once you figure out location. So for me, it's my bigger my bigger like evening food source. You know, you see them on, on the TV shows and in articles, it's the destination food plot. That's what people call them, but it's, it's that bigger, you know, maybe it's a one acre, two acre, three acre, depending on your situation. And it's where you want the deer to end up at quitting time in the the evening during bow season. So, I mean, in your mind, just think, okay, it's November 1st. Where do I want the deer to be at quitting time as the sun sets? And that's where you want to locate those destination food sources. And then the only other food sources I plant are the transition plots. And I, that's all I'm trying to do is steer the traffic.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm trying to get somewhere in between bedding and that, and that evening food source. And I'm planting a really small kind of shitty food plot. Again, I don't want it to be two acres of prime stuff. I just want it to be quarter acre winter rye, you know, not, not even the greatest, my goal isn't great food. My goal is to just try and steer them through an area so I can get a shot at them and I can get in there hunt and get out in the evening. And if I did everything right, the deer will have no clue they're being hunted.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That strategy. Uh, I like that strategy now in this, the, the most recent article, it came out today actually, uh, in the mail and it's uh summer prep for fall food and hunting and a, a part of that article deals with soil tests. Um, is, is now the time, best time of year to do a soil sample test?
1: Well, I don't know, because I don't, I don't soil test for fertilizer. So in that article, I explain how, and I'm not saying you can't. So if, if there's hunters out there that are taking soil tests annually or maybe biannually, and that method is working for them, I would say, keep doing it. Don't, if something is working for you, don't change. But my issue has always been, and this is going to sound bad, but I probably have 20 different food plots, little bitty transition plots, destination plots. And every year I'm rotating what I'm putting in them, especially if it's corn and beans. And to me, it just got to be a hassle of taking... 20 different soil tests every year and sending them in waiting for the results. Um, so now the only thing I test for is pH. Okay. That's the only thing I test for. And I don't send, I don't take a soil sample for that. I'll use litmus paper and you can get litmus paper online for, well, I don't even know what I pay. It's like, it's cheap. It's like a $20 roll of litmus paper will last you five years.
0: Yeah.
1: And you just take a, you just take a, shovel full of dirt like a half a shovel full of dirt mix it like in a one gallon pail like an ice cream pail with some distilled water let that solution kind of be a slurry and then run your litmus paper through it and it'll turn a color to check for your ph and you can do that anytime you can you can do that spring summer fall and then and then you just correct for it with
0: lime i gotcha. so does that ever deter you from planning a specific food plot in a specific location?
1: No. No. I think down here in southern Iowa, you don't have really bad problems with pH. There's probably there's probably and I know there is parts of the country where the normal pH where the ground wants to gravitate to, you know, if it's unlined is 5 or like five and a half. And that's really acidic. Um, in Iowa, I don't see, I don't see that it's really hard to maintain on like a six and a half pH which is that's, that's my goal is six and a half. Yeah. To me, to me it's pretty easy to maintain that, but I don't, I don't soil test for fertilizer. I soil test for pH and I do pH about once every three years. Okay. Because if I, let's say I come in at a six and I don't know these numbers off my head. Um, but a lot of this stuff would be online. You can say, okay, I got a half an acre food plot. It's, it's a clay loam. How much line do I need to add to go from a six to a six, five? And let's just say that that's a ton and a half or one ton. That'll, that should be good for at least three years, if not longer. Okay. Once you line it, the first year, you won't even get the full benefit. The second year you'll get, you know, I don't know, 60, 70% of the full benefit of the lime. And by the third year, you'll actually, it takes that long for the lime to dissolve and break down and raise the pH.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, one question that I've actually gotten from a guy um, was how do you combat overgrazing, right? You obviously want the food plot to be in its prime condition, starting for all intensive purposes, we'll use Iowa here, October first, or whenever you decide to take your vacation from work or or whatever. Right? You want to you want that food plot to be performing at its max during the hunting season, and sometimes you know the deer find it before that, and they can really destroy it. So, how do you combat overgrazing?
1: Well if you have an overgrazing problem then you need to pick food plot varieties that are more graze tolerant so for me that's cereal grains like winter rye and oats are probably um the most browse tolerant i guess if you want to call it and you can actually you can actually put in winter rye like mid-august mid to late august and if they're over browsing it you can actually overseed with, let's say another hundred pounds per acre of winter rye, and it'll keep it'll keep that stuff will germinate in like two days if it gets rain. Okay. So the first thing you can do is pick a variety that's more graze tolerant. To me, that's cereal grains. If you want if you want to get into your brassicas and clovers and stuff like that, and they're still being over over grazed, um, your plots gotta be bigger. Or for me, my grain plots, but you can do this with green plots too, but my, my soybeans and corn, those are all fenced in.
0: Okay. So right
1: right now my beans and my corn have a double electric fence around them. And I do that because I only plant, you know, two acres, and six, seven, eight, ten deer can wipe out two acres of corn in the summertime pretty easily. Yeah. So if you're having the same kind of issues with your green food plots, let's say brassicas, and you don't want to do winter rye, you're gonna either have to make the plot bigger or you're gonna to have to fence them in. The last thing I would tell you to look at is to take a step back and be honest with yourself and do an assessment of your population on your land.
0: Ah, uh, good so, point. I
1: mean if if you're overpopulated and there's a lot of deer, um, you know, that's another issue. Now I'm not saying I'm not saying you should go and slaughter a bunch of does just so that you can plant the food plot you want to plant. I'm not saying that. Yeah. But what I'm saying is if you have way too many does, your food plots being browsed are a symptom. It's like, it's like a, you know, you're going to the doctor because you have symptoms. The symptom isn't, isn't a disease. So if you're planting, let's say you're planting an acre of brassicas, and you're doing everything right, Um, pH is fine, you're putting down enough fertilizer, and an acre of brassicas, maybe mixed in with a little winter rye, whatever, are getting browsed to the ground, you should probably take a step back and and say to yourself, let's see, I got this 120 acre farm here, and I got 40 does and fawns on it, that's that's probably hurting you. It's probably hurting you that you can't plant the food plots you wanna plant, but there's a whole bunch of other more important reasons why overpopulation, and again, an overgrazed food plot is a symptom of that, is actually making your hunting worse.
0: Yeah, So, and from the hunting standpoint, not, I would think where it would just make it that much easier for a buck to locate a doe and not necessarily have to cruise around a property and make himself vulnerable to be shot.
1: Well, yeah, that's one big reason, but if you let, so let's say you have a hundred acres and you fill it up with does and fawns. And again, I see this all the time and you fill it up with those and fawns. You don't wanna, you don't wanna, or you can't harvest the necessary does and you you're providing phenomenal fawning cover. So you have a lot of warm season grasses and you you're doing a bunch of hinge cuttings. You're, you're providing phenomenal habitat for the fall. And you're providing great lush clover and alfalfa and soybean food plots all on this hundred acres. What's going to happen is if you can't shoot enough does with your gun, you're going to load that hundred acres up with those and fawns because that they're they're not going to leave. They're going to stay there all summer and fawn and fawn. In the fall, they're not going to leave, and they're going to be there the entire season. What this does, I know we're getting off the food plot stuff, but what this does is now when bucks disperse in the fall when they're a year and a half old and they're and they're trying to find their new, their new home range when the does kick them out of their original home range where they were born you're not going to have any bucks that pick your hundred acres to establish their new home range right because you are loaded with does and fawns right so what you've done is you've just created a a situation where your farm the hunting on your farm will probably be very poor, except for about a 15 day period in the rut. And even then it's still gonna be worse than all the other farms in the areas for the reason that you just said. Yeah. Because as soon as the buck comes in on that property, it's literally right now and they're gonna, ha- they're gonna have a doe that's, that's in heat. Yeah. So you've, you've created, you've, let's say you bought that piece you spent three hundred thousand dollars on a hundred acre farm, and you only get to hunt it ten days a year because the rest of the year there's fifty dozen fawns on it yeah, that's just not a scenario that that's not a that, that's not my goal when I do right habitat and stuff improvements you know what i'm saying
0: right right you're You're not only there to i guess provide them nutrition to stay, but you also i mean you're there for the bucks. I mean, we'd be yeah. kidding, kidding ourselves if we would, you know, if my goal was to just straight fill a freezer. Oh yeah, that's a great scenario for me, right? I, I'm, but we all, I mean, let's be honest, we're at some point hoping we run into a giant throughout the year. Yeah, and correct, you can't kill a buck if I mean, yes, there's some things there that interest them, but we all know that a you know a mature buck does not like to be bothered even by other deer. Correct. So, right, So you're not,
1: you might see that, you might see that mature buck occasionally. You might pick him up on a game camera, but, but really he's almost going to be going to be unhuntable for you because more than likely he's bedding somewhere a half mile or a mile away. You're picking him up at night and you know, your, your only chance of killing that deer is, like I said, 10 or 15 days, maybe in the middle of the rut if you get lucky enough to have a hot bill with that buck walk by you i mean it's just a it's basically a i'm hoping to get lucky scenario it's it's really what it is
0: yeah yeah you're right man you're right all right so thinning them down would probably then allow a, a, a maybe a buck or two to come in and then call that home like that's their that's their area then
1: yeah absolutely yeah. if if you can have I mean, imagine, just imagine like a 10 square mile area and you have the best habitat. Now, when I say the best habitat, I'm talking the fall now. So you have, you have a lot of woody browse, you have some green food plots, um, hunting is low, or you're hunting, you're hunting your land in a way that the deer don't perceive that they're being hunted. And the, the doe population, the doe family group population is low. I, I shouldn't even say Low. But like below average for that area, right? You're gonna attract and hold the above average amount of bucks on your property in the area. That's that's just how it works. Okay. It's just simple math. Yeah, because they don't, and especially especially a lot a lot of times too, you'll see where these year and a half and two and a half and a and even three and a half year old bucks, you'll see them. And you'll see them the next year, and you'll see them the next year, and then all of a sudden, maybe when they're three or they're four or they're five, they're gone. But yet, you'll pick them up on your cameras at night, or maybe you even, or maybe you'll see them during the rut. And what that happened, what happened there is they've they've just they've changed. They have no tolerance anymore, so they're spending their their fall somewhere else. Maybe it's a 40 away, maybe it's a mile away, but they're just not going to tolerate. 50 does and fawns and and stuff around them they're just not going to tolerate it
0: right so they leave okay
1: They, they just they just set up their their primary bedding and stuff somewhere else in their in their original home range but just not on your property anymore
0: yeah absolutely all right so i want to talk to you a little bit about this this theory you have for access trails to your uh trail cameras i know it's a little bit off the food plot but I, th- I feel it's important because would you, would you call yourself a food plot hunter? Um, no, I want, I, I use the only time I'm a food
1: plot hunter is late season. Okay. It's like Christmas time, new, new years. That's, that's when you'll see me sitting over a food plot. Okay. Um, the transition plots that I put in. Some of these plots don't even look good. I mean, if you take a picture and put them on social media, people are like, well, you call that a food plot?" Because they they're not intended on feeding deer. So I'm I used to be a food plot hunter a lot more, like I said, fifteen twenty years ago. But I'm no pun intended, but I'm transitioning away from that, and now I'm a I hunt downward side and bedding areas and funnels and fence drops and uh, ditch crossings and my transition food plot areas that I create. Um, so my food the food that I plant is used to direct travel. I'm using it to manipulate the deer so that they travel where I want them to travel.
0: Okay. All right. So then let's talk about these access uh, trails. Now I've heard some guys say that they don't like to do this and I want you to tell me maybe why I'm wrong or why they're, why they should reconsider. But if you create, A wide open access trail to a tree stand you run the risk of a deer using that as well and then potentially busting you
1: well so i'll start by saying this if whatever you're doing for access for entrance and and exit is working then don't listen to a word that tom says yeah because that's one thing I'll always say is if you got something that's working, then you do what what works for you. But what works for me is I use a lot is cow pastures. So I'm not mowing a, I'm not mowing a path, I'm not doing anything. I'm using the cow pastures already. If it's if there's a fair number of cows in there, there's no vegetation. If I if I do make any noise at all, the deer associate, you know, rocks or twig snapping with cows in the pasture so i use cow pastures a lot when i can i'll use ditches i'll walk up the bottom of a ditch if i can if you do make any noise it's down in the ditch that so doesn't go very far deer can't see you down in the, in the ditch and your scent really doesn't leave the ditch very readily one of my farms has about 50 acres of warm season grass um, big blue stem, i think is the predominant um, grass that's in there and it gets Oh, I don't know. I bet just six, seven feet, maybe even taller. And I'll mow an access path through that. Um, probably the end of August type of thing, but I mow it in such a way that I don't know how to explain. It. I'm not mowing a, pa- a, a, a path, like right to my stand. So I'll make kind of like a J hook if I can. So I'll, I'll mow where I can come in, where I, where I want to walk, right, where I'm thinking, okay, this stand, let's say, is a west wind. So I'm mowing it. So when I'm walking down that path, my scent that's going that's going to the east is not going to go where there's deer. I'm mowing it in an area that I'm not going to be walking past, like any kind of bedding area. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll mow, let's say, two 300 yards, and then I'll make a J-hook, like a 50-yard, 60-yard J-hook, and then I'll come into my stand. That way, if let's say, let's say deer are using that access trail, when they come in, they're upwind of me and they're not like walking right to my stand. You see what I'm saying? Yep. So, and that's what works for me. Um, The last maybe 50 yards, 60 yards, 70 yards, kind of depending on the stand. If I'm walking through timber or let's say a, a fence roll or something like that. That's when I'm already starting to do my spraying. I'll, I'll spray with like glyphosate and 2,4-D. And I'll... and I'll Like through grass that's three feet tall and woody brows. And I'm it's hitting my pants and I'm leaving scent behind and I'm making noise. So I'll do that, like maybe the last 50, 60 yards. And that's more of a scent, leaving scent behind thing. <laughs> And trying to be as quiet as I can type of thing when I get in
0: right so so we all know that vegetation grows sometimes really fast if the conditions are right when are you when are you spraying those trails
1: well I'll start now and then I wish I wish I'd have known you were gonna ask that question but it you can mix glyphosate and I'm gonna gonna murder this I'm gonna murder this uh, chemical but it's like a Mazapure I don't know if I'm saying it right, but it's actually like a, it's got a long residual in it. I want to say it's like 30 to 70 days of residual. So you can do a, the glyphosate will burn down. And then the amazapir actually gets activated when it gets rained into the soil and it won't let, it won't let stuff come up for months. So if you do that, like first of July ish, that'll probably get you to hunting season because once, once you get toward uh, the end of August and early September, even if there's weeds there that are no longer being affected by that residual chemical, it's already starting to get cold and, and they're not going to germinate anymore.
0: Yeah. So All that's,
1: right. that's the other method. If you're, if you're not going to go out and get that long residual chemical like a mazapir, then you just, you're going to do a, maybe a couple of year, You'll have to go in and spray it with glyphosate and then go back and do it again type of thing.
0: Got you. All right. So uh, one of the last questions I have for you here is, you know, a guy, maybe a guy struggling with a a food plot or he's not sure what he what he should do. I guess my first question to you is, have you ever been bitten by overanalyzing and not just taking action and doing something?
1: um when it comes to, to
0: when it comes to food plots i mean like oh well maybe i should do this well maybe i should do this well or should, i should put it here well maybe i should put it here and not letting yourself you know like the the old saying a paralysis by analysis
1: yeah so i i guess i i'm sure i probably have i'm sure i'm sure you can ask if my wife was in here right now if she'd be nodding she'd be saying <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah because i i over when it comes to whitetails, i i overanalyze everything yeah I'm, I'm part of like some social media, um, groups or whatever on Facebook and stuff. And some of the questions these guys ask, and I'm not picking on these guys, but it is a hundred percent overanalyzing. Yeah. You know, should I do this? And should I wait before it rains, And what if it rains and then I don't do this? And then what if I put down this much fertilizer, but it really needed this much. And to some point you're right, do the best you can. And then maybe even take notes. I used to do this a lot. I would actually take notes. Okay so this this food plot i put down six pounds of this blend and this is the fertilizer i used and when i tested the ph this is what the ph was and see what you get but the main focus there is when you're hunting and when you're analyzing your food plots you have to take a step back and be honest with yourself on is this working one does the food does the food plot look good is it lush is there a lot of green is there a lot of tonnage there plenty of food there for the deer number two even if all that's true are they even eating it so you can have a food plot looks great and if the deer aren't eating it well that's not doing you any good so you got to be honest with yourself there number three did it help you get a deer was it put in the right location but so sometimes yeah you got to learn from experiment i'm almost 50 and i've been doing this a long time so did i make tons of mistakes oh you bet i did but the main thing that I always try and tell myself is to be honest with myself and what worked and what didn't work. And then what you try and do is repeat the stuff that works and be honest with yourself, the stuff that doesn't work and then change from that either quit doing it or change it or, or alter something to try and get it to where it is working. And that's kind of what I was telling you before where I see properties that people buy a property and the first thing they do is they go in and they do just phenomenal hinge cutting and warm season grasses and food plots. And five years later, that property is three times worse than the day they bought it for hunting. It looks great. The food plots are immaculate. They've spent $20,000 on equipment and tractors. And I mean, it's, you could probably sell it and make money on it because it looks great, but the hunting actually got worse. Yeah. So as long as you're doing an honest assessment with yourself, um, it doesn't matter if you're making mistakes or you're overanalyzing or underanalyzing. If you make mistakes, just realize, okay, that didn't work. So we're going to do something different next year.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. Well, Tom, man, I really appreciate your time talking food plots with us today. Um, Hopefully the rest of your, uh, your habitat management work throughout the rest of the summer goes smoothly and we will have to touch base closer to fall for any last minute uh you know prep work that you're doing before the season actually starts
1: yeah you bet all I'd say is if if there's people listening to this right now and they're wanting to do some fall food plots I can't stress enough you know get into those areas and mow them or do a down. you got to start doing that stuff right now i'm looking out my window right now and i'm looking at canary grass it's four feet tall and you're not going to be putting a food plot in the end of august in four foot tall canary grass so just kind of just get yourself ready if you're if you're looking at doing it this fall start now start now
0: there you go tom appreciate your time thanks a lot Dan. always fun